Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to finish off our exploration of Franz Fanon's Black Skin White Masks with the second half starting from chapter 5 titled The Fact of Blackness. Now before jumping into it, uh, hi, I'm David. Uh, you should probably know that because this is part 2. But in any case, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guigno. If you're new here, which would be weird, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you to you. So if you're new, go check out the first episode of this and all my other episodes. Uh, but like, share, subscribe, and then you'll see videos that release every single week. If you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube, where the, sometimes there's a video. Or if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form, uh, if you're into that at all. If you are listening to this in podcast form and you can leave a review, that would help me out a lot. Uh, and yeah. And you can help me out monetarily. Did I say that? I'm all confused today. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. There are links in the description for that. And yeah, without further ado, let us continue here with the second final half of uh, Fano's Black Skin White Masks. So here, chapter five, the fact of blackness. So as a black man, Fano lived his life as an object, feeling himself to be an object in the eyes of his European counterparts. As he existed as an other, and he existed as an other to, uh, you know, the dominant social order, but also as an other to himself. And this will become apparent through the course of this chapter here. So in order for him to gain any kind of identity, it depended almost entirely upon white people conferring recognition onto him, recognizing him. He needed that affirmation from white people in order to even feel himself existing. And so in this setting, there can be no real self-realization because all identity comes from without. It comes from an other. So for anyone who's listening to this and immediately thinks Hegel, don't worry, we'll get into it in more detail, just not, not at this moment. So this incapacity to exist to realize a kind of self-realization will determine not only, of course, how Fino is going to move through the world. Of course, he's going to move through the world maybe slower, uh, with a lot more difficulty than white people, for example. It's going to estrange him from himself, where he feels himself not to, to always be striving for recognition, for an identity. And so in the world... In the setting that he is describing, which which is one that can really be extended to so many other ones, he always has to be alert for his own actions. He always has to be looking at himself almost from the outside. He has to always be vigilant of his every single movement. He has to be like just just floating outside of himself, looking at himself as an object. And the reason that that is the case is because he has to match his body with the way that his body is expected to exist in the world. And we see this time and time again with uh, like dash cam footage, with uh, police body cam footage of black people engaging with police where they have to, and this is so unbelievably apparent, they have to be so careful with any one of their movements, any action that they make. They need to make it so abundantly clear that what they are doing is not going to spook the white police officer. 
whereas a white kid going across state lines can run around with a machine gun and not be harassed by police. If a black man reaches for his glove box, he is navigating possible death. He has to sit in a moment and ask himself, in, in this case, a black man has to ask himself, how am I going to get my papers out of a glove box without being shot? So in that moment, that man has to leave his own body because to be in your own body means that you can just move through the world without resistance. You know to just reach for the glove box, like in any interaction um, other people might have had, like white people might have had with the police. You know, you just, to get all your papers out, you just reach for the glove box, that's it. You don't have to sit and think whether or not this is going to be construed as something else and how you have to cater your body in order to fit that gaze so that gaze does not kill you. So thinking about this in more detail, Fanon recalls an experience he had on a train where a young boy, young white boy with his mother, points to Fanon and calls out his blackness and says, like, look, there's a black man there. And he, the kid starts, feels scared that Fanon is there. Uh, and in this moment, Fanon, Fanon himself feels scared. So we have a mutual sense of fear. The white boy feels fear of the black man, and the black man feels fear of what the consequences will be of the white boy experiencing fear simply by Fanon's bodily presence. Now, these two experiences of fear, although both fear, are it couldn't be further apart. They are extremely different. And in that moment, Fanon describes how he wasn't even looking at himself in the third person. He existed as a triple person. And what he means by that is that he felt like he was taking up more space, the space of three people, than he would have otherwise. And suddenly he became so hyper aware of him existing in the world and him not belonging in that space that his body, just as, as almost like a, a shell, stood in for everything he knew to be himself. Everything else went away. In that moment, all it became about was him surviving and existing in a moment in which his body stood in for everything he knew. And that body was expanded through space to become an aberration, to become something that was uh, to be feared by the majority white population. Now, in thinking about all this, he also leaves room, and he draws upon the work of Jean-Paul Sartre here, he, he, he leaves room to think about the commonalities between uh, racism and anti-Semitism. Now, there, there are difficulties here, and certain people take up, uh, have engaged anti-Semitism as a kind of racism, but that's not how Fanon really takes it up here. So he acknowledges, and he's very much, he, he very much believes that to be anti-Semitic is to be racist, and to be racist is to be anti-Semitic, in that there is a commonality between the two. They are both driven by a desire to purge the world of something that is seen as unsavory to the dominant uh, social order, European, Christian, white values. Now, where he notes a difference is that in the case of Jewish people who might be white passing and might not be uh, it might not be readily apparent that they are Jewish in every given moment, he says that black people are going to have a different time existing in the world. 
and he doesn't say that it's more difficult or less difficult. He he really just stresses that it's different, at, at least I believe, because at, at every moment he is going to be put under the radar, under the microscope by everybody around him at every moment. Whereas if you are a Jewish person, that's something that might not be readily apparent to everyone in the world, even though it is still very much something that can be discriminated against and violence can be inflicted towards it. So for Fanon, as opposed to Jewish people, Fanon says that he is a black man, is the slave not of the idea that others have of him, but of his own appearance. So anything that he does, any action that he commits in the world, is going to be scrutinized in ways that white people or white passing people won't need to, uh, won't need to do. If he talks too loudly, that might be a sign of his blackness that is used as a way to uh, further police him or to silence him. Or um, let's say in the case of like a black doctor, if a black doctor is doing surgery on someone or treating somebody and something goes wrong, that's going to be taken as a sign of his inferiority as a black doctor to fulfill that role as a doctor. Whereas in the case of like a white person, it will be seen as an aberration not as a sign of the uh, shortcomings of white people to fulfill that role. So anything and everything that black people do is going to be measured in relationship to the dominant understanding of what black people should and can be capable of. And that is going to, of course, reduce black people, as I think has already been made abundantly clear, to their bodies, denying uh, the same kind of entrance, the same kind of participation, in intellectual um, endeavors, those academic, political, and so on, which is just repeated very much to this day. If we look at the uh, actual um, presence of black people in many different, uh, many of the upper echelons of society, we will see that it is uh, abhorrent how few black people occupy these positions. And I think that any decent person would agree that that is a bad thing. So as I already mentioned, Fanon is indebted to Sartre. He, he, he likes Sartre's work. He draws upon existentialism as Sartre lays it out. But he also has some issues with what Sartre writes. Uh, so some of the limits that he sees is how Sartre appropriates or thinks about the existence of the other in relationship to uh, a, a self. So, in, and we are still, still wait, we're going to get into Hegel later. But in order for someone to attain a degree of individuality and subjectivity and, and self-identity, they need to come into contact with some other that they can recognize as their own identity, their own, uh, and, and so on, in order for them to, in a sense, emulate it. And so what you have is a situation in which all people are others that, you know, by, by virtue of us all being others who are, uh, to each other, we become subjects and, and so on. Now, the problem here for Fanon is that for black people, the other is not only an other. White people are not only others. They are masters. And so here is an, opened up another dynamic that is not encapsulated by a simple understanding of selves and others because there is uh, a, a disequilibrium here. There is a hierarchy that upsets any possible um, demonstration or realization of selfhood and so in the case of black people, their identity as black people is taken as something to be renounced, taken as something to be 
uh, that they have to say no to, kind of what Nietzsche describes as chasantima, a saying no to life, a saying no to oneself, in order to fit into the mold imposed upon them by their white counterparts. If counterparts might be attributing too much of an equality between them, their white uh, global superiors as they are enforce their hegemonic order upon black people. And that puts us here into chapter six, the Negro and psychopathology. So here he considers how relevant the work of Freud or Adler, really Freud mostly, uh, how relevant is that to understanding the experience is of colonized people? And the short answer is kind of helpful, but it ultimately or their theories ultimately fall short. And one of the big reasons why this is, is that psychoanalysis bases much of its approach on two, on two central things that Fanon will focus on here. That is the Oedipus complex and the family. And these things, they go hand in hand, but he, he looks at them a little bit separately. And the simple response to the emphasis on the family and the Oedipal complex or the Oedipus complex in psychoanalysis, the simple response in the form of a question would be, does the family in Europe, does that form of the family exist everywhere? Is that a universal uh, familial setting or familial arrangement? And therefore, if it is not, then how does that trouble the Oedipal uh, complex, the Oedipus complex? And for those that don't know, the Oedipus complex is the complex that emerges in young boys where they have uh, a strong desire to be with their mothers sexually but their fathers are in, get in the way. Their fathers forbid them from uh, realizing some kind of relationship, a physical sexual relationship with their mothers. So the son resorts to killing the father. And this is, comes out in Oedipus Rex. So what will happen then, to put it really briefly in the psychoanalytic tradition, is that the son is going to suppress these desires and then impart them upon another woman who will assume this kind of motherly role to him. And all this does is it just motivates certain uh, gender roles and stereotypes about how men and women are supposed to act to one another. And we see the, the situation, um, we see it be repeated again and again and again. And so because it is ubiquitous in Europe, this, this dynamic, it is, it is present everywhere in Europe, we see it actually be replicated among various European institutions where there is this strong emphasis on patriarchal uh, oversight of an institution, of a business, of politics, of religion, whatever, that is meant to overlook a bureaucratic order that is often associated with a kind of femininity that people are trying to enter into, to become part of, that the, over, um, the overseeing patriarchal order gatekeeps and keeps people out of. So because we see this dynamic replicated from the family to the rest of society, the family then serves as a space, as a zone, to socialize people, to prepare people for the real world. Now, in the case of black people, let's say, for example, they did go through this same familial dynamic. They went through the same kind of nuclear family structure. There was a patriarchal uh, overseeing father, uh, a caring, loving mother, and a, and a son Let's just imagine that there's this boring dynamic and then uh, the child grows up and tries to enter into this world. They are not going to be welcomed with open arms in the way that just a white person would in, in France, for instance, uh, as 
we've been talking about France mostly here, because there is the added factor of their race being a determining component of how they will be received in the world. It doesn't matter how socialized they were. They are going to be determined and um, are going to be affected on the basis of their race. Now, to elaborate further on this psychoanalytic dimension, when I said that people would, or young boys, are going to de defer or to transfer their desire for their mothers onto other women, they're going to do other kinds of transferences as well. And this is going to, it's called sublimation. And sublimation is when you take a desire that you have that you are not allowed to do because society gets in the way, and you transfer it onto things that society will deem are useful or valuable or acceptable. So for example, if you uh, have this desire to murder your father to sleep with your mother, you might just, you might just transfer that into a desire for other women in the psychoanalytic tradition. But there's still going to be a rage that you have to deal with. And so this rage might be released by joining the military or playing sports or video games or whatever someone does. Now, in the way that I'm saying this, I'm, I have a slight smile. I, I, have, I have a lot of trouble believing psychoanalysis in, in almost any way, shape, and form. But this is kind of how the story goes. So for people in a so-called healthy state of mind who are properly socialized, they might work out their aggressive impulses by turning to entertainment as a kind of cathartic release, like magazines, like comic books, movies, whatever, to release those urges. So, or, or they might read adventure stories. And in these cases, a lot of the pop culture, a lot of the culture they're going to consume is going to repeat and affirm certain cultural trends and, and beliefs. Now, these cultural trends and beliefs while not necessarily the only way to or how they are depicted in these forms of entertainment, they aren't necessarily the only way to release these so-called uh, aggressive drives or impulses. They are nevertheless there. And so what we see here is beyond just satisfying uh, what might be a, a human desire to realize, to uh, fulfill certain impulses and desires, what might be a natural human drive to do that is now supplemented by maybe racial hatred, as we see uh, occurring in many of these, in many adventure books, in many films. And Fanon goes through a number of them. It would take me too long to go through each one of them, but he presents so many in which uh, black people are depicted as being like um, wild figures that tame and well-mannered white people go to civilize and to conquer. And because the culture industry is really so pervasive, even, even at the time that he was writing this, which is really at the time, around the same time that Adorno was starting to really uh, sink his teeth into this concept of the culture industry and, and Horkheimer, because the culture industry was so pervasive, of course there were going to be black people and other people of color who would be consuming this same entertainment, and they would then associate, because many of the heroes in these forms of entertainment are white people, they would associate with white associating with the black people or other people of color depicted on screen. And they might even come to resent those other people depicted on screen for their not ascribing to or belonging to the appreciated European culture or European cultures. For anyone, there's probably a few people that are like, you know that Europe is many different countries, right? They didn't know the colonialism. Um, 
I know, I know. And we see this very much play out today. There have been numerous studies done with black children in, in especially urban settings where they would ask black children to draw or imagine like what a doctor looks like and they'll draw a white guy for being a doctor or like what the president can look like. And of course, uh, we, how might these things might have changed after Barack Obama, who I don't know the, the actual change between before and after that. But in any case, what we, we repeatedly see is that positions of power, positions of authority, positions, largely privileged positions, are going to be associated with whiteness, while other positions are, are not. So in terms of family structures, to return to the Antillean context, in the Antilles, family doesn't resemble the same uh, structure that we see in, in many European countries. It will be much bigger. You will have many more members of the family being present, probably under the same roof. You will have other people uh, in, in, a, in a town or village that are going to participate, contribute to raising a child. And this really troubles the idea that there's one way to conduct uh, child rearing, especially when we consider as well other kinds of like relationship arrangements. Now for black people as well, the idea about suppressing or repressing anxieties and fears isn't quite as accessible to them, partly because many of the risks that are threatening them are very real uh, in the way that for white people who largely exist in a world that privileges them in these settings here, they do not, that is, black people do not get to just repress their anxieties. They have to embrace them on an embodied physical level as a kind of defensive tactic against uh, continued forms of oppression. So in order for a black person going from an Antilles to France, for example, would demand not only the adoption of that culture, but also a renunciation then of that very family structure that they came from in order to go into the broader family structure of uh, French life, uh, how, how France is organized. Now, with all this, we can't ignore the ways that black men are fetishized and black women are fetishized in these colonial settings. And there's so many reasons for that, uh, that Fanon doesn't even, can't cover them all. Uh, and we very much see this continue to this day where there, you know, if anyone's ever watched porn, you would know very well, the various categories that are there reflect certain ideas about black men, notably ideas about sexual prowess, uh, being particularly well endowed and how these things come to determine how black people are constructed sexually, how black men are constructed sexually, and how in a lot of cases, the white women, they'll, they'll be with white women, how there's like an obsession with women being small uh, in comparison to black men, as though it's like meant to capture a kind of like, uh, to emulate and to repeat a dynamic between a kind of aggressiveness and uh, um, almost like a childish innocence. So in relation to the colonial setting here that Fanon is describing, the idea about black men motivates a lot of fear within white men of black men. Fear that the, the, the way that black men are constructed as sexual beings is going to encourage their wives to leave their white husbands to be with black men. And of course, all this is, is, is absolutely absurd. Fanon presents data that um, the average penis in... It was one setting in, in Northern Africa that he presented where 
the average uh, penis size of men there was like four and a half inches. Very, it was very much similar to that of white European men. Yet still, the idea that black men have larger penises pervaded, and it was something that stoked fear in the hearts of white men because they felt like they were being emasculated in relation to black men. And this is one of the real driving forces behind anti-black racism. And he says that there's something similar that goes on with Jewish people that encourages anti-Semitism, where in the case of Jewish people, anti-Semitism is born out of a fear that Jewish people have too much political or economic power. One of the ways that anti-black racism uh, comes about is from a fear that black men, especially black men, are too, um, have too much sexual power. And we get the same fear replicating itself of white men fearing that their white daughters are going to date black men. And so about this, Fanon asks, does the father revolt to this because of the fear that the black man will introduce his daughter into a sexual universe for which the father does not have the key, the weapons, or the attributes? And it all it is all very incestual. And this plays itself out in many different ways, like with promise rings that fathers give to their daughters or ideas about uh and i'm sure many people have heard this that like a man will say that oh if i have a daughter she's not going to date any men which really signals two things that he knows very well how he's treated women in the past and knows very well that other men are going to treat women the way he treated women but it also means or it reveals at least to me that he only views his daughter's sexuality as something that is reserved for him uh, something that has to occur within his world. Something that has to be maintained and managed by him. But at least, I'm, I'm digressing something slightly here. It's just something that irks me to my core. Now, in all of this, and I, I said this in the first episode, what Fanon has really done is he's really moved beyond the experience of Antillian and Martinican black people and really extrapolated this idea to all contexts in which black people are oppressed by uh, white people through the through colonization and through other means and that is because he had really no other choice he's he's looking at all this he's looking at data he's looking at uh cultural items cultural artifacts and he just can't deny the fact that there is such a mutual disdain for black people across all european nations that he just couldn't he couldn't not universalize it like as though there there is this common thread this common fear of black people that he had to, he couldn't ignore. And one of these common things, or some of these common things, are that white men act aggressively to black men and, and maintain certain, or try to maintain certain ideas about black men. Likewise, white women uh, put black men under a certain gaze, which is, and there's an essay about this, and I should dig it up, where the author was troubling the idea about the male gaze to say that there is also a white woman gaze. And the author looks at histories of slavery in the United States where black men were constantly, repeatedly put on display for white women, almost as like a site of enjoyment. So there was a white woman gaze of black men. And I, I saw a TikTok about this the other day where the kind of the caption was like uh, what the female gaze would look like. Of course, it's a white woman gaze. And it showed a few pictures of men of color, like very attractive men of color. And it just reminded me of this. And it's just a recapitulation of the same history of putting 
men of color under a certain microscope for white women to uh as though white women or they pretend like they don't enjoy many of the same privileges that um that black men and and black women do not enjoy that they very much benefit off of many of the same racist sexist stru structures that also at the same time oppress them by men but in any case again a digression so with all of this Fanon sees two broad options either plead with people not to see his black skin to to be colorblind as it might go today uh, or to make them aware of it to make them abundantly aware of it and that they're to show them why they're wrong about it in both cases, Fanon says that his skin becomes a barrier for him to surpass. He can't just exist in it. He has to put his skin on display or take it out of display in order to appeal to his white, uh, the white people looking at him, be it, be it the white man or the white woman. And he, he concludes this chapter by considering a case study with with one a young woman who has repeated dreams of being in uh, settings uh, with 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 black men, and he uses this example despite all of the interventions that he goes through. Uh, he uses this example to show that negrophobia, the fear of blackness, is largely incurable because it is always going to be uh, enforced by the social setting that that dominates which is largely racist. And here we get into chapter seven, the Negro and recognition, where, and this is where we're going to talk about Hegel a little bit. So it's broken into two parts. First, he talks about Adler, a psychoanalytic theory there, and then Hegel. So starting with Adler, he says that Adler proposes thinking about neurosis as a disposition towards some goal. So neurotic people, at least in the psychoanalytic tradition, are viewed as being very goal-oriented. And it's just that they exist to uh they go in excess of what the goal necessarily would demand so they might always want to have a clean house and so they they end up scrubbing like i don't know the the bottoms of their cabinets or the bottoms of their like under their beds or like the bottom frame under their bed that's a silly example maybe they take like paintings off the wall and clean behind the paintings every day i you know extreme things to realize the goal of having a clean house or apartment or whatever. So in this way, neurosis is not determined by someone just engaging in random actions. And so Fanon applies this to the experience of Antillian men or Antillian black people who see it as their goal to become white. And they'll do almost anything to, to become white. He, he presents that there are uh, there were labs at the time that were trying to find a way to bleach skin to make skin more white. And we see that very much going on today in all, many different parts of the world, efforts to become more white. At the same time, interestingly, we see in North America, especially efforts to become less white on the part of white people, not, not in the same, it's not the same motivating drive, at least in the way that I understand it. It's more desire to retain a, a degree of whiteness all the while injecting a little bit of how um and it, regrettably uh, a certain degree of like exoticism within that whiteness to, to to inject a kind of excitement whereas in the case of uh people of color bleaching their skin or trying to become more white what we see is almost an effort to 
survive in a world that is largely uh, that largely appreciates white skin over other skin colors. Now, I think it's important to caveat this to say that this is a, an extremely complicated issue that is going to vary drastically in different contexts. This experience is going to be incredibly different in India versus uh, China versus Brazil versus Canada. The, the issue is, is incredibly difficult. Uh, I think it's just important to say. So in any case, in this context, the Antillian context, he says that there is a, a goal to become white. And that is because, in his words, it is the other who corroborates him in his search for self-validation. And if that other is a white person, what better person to become than to become a white person? So all Antillian society is then a neurotic society, in a sense for Fennell, because they are a society of comparison, wanting to become that end goal. And here he considers uh, Hegel. So I think it's important to take a second to explain Hegel uh, briefly. And I, I want to put it out there. I think that I think that Fanon, I don't understand Hegel in quite the same way as Fanon understands Hegel, especially in the way uh, the dynamic between the serf and the, the and bondsman or lord and bondsman. And but anyways, that's not totally important. What is important, though, though, is that in Hegel, the idea is that we gain self-consciousness when we come in contact with somebody else, with another being, who has consciousness. Because having consciousness implies that you can engage with things in the world through sense perception. You look at the world, you see things, and you impart judgment on it, you know, saying whether or not you want to eat that thing on the ground or lick that rock or whatever. You know, you impart certain judgments. And you see other people and you impart certain judgments on them as well. In that moment, suddenly you become aware of the possibility of you being viewed and uh, essentially cognized, thought about. And in that moment, then you, you say, can I think of myself? And suddenly you turn your own conscious faculties back upon yourself. And here we have the formation of self-consciousness. Now, this is one of the first moments in the phenomenology of spirit that will eventually lead to what he calls absolute knowing and absolute religion, where, and to put it very shortly, uh, briefly, and I've done, I've done four episodes on that text, which isn't nearly enough, but it, if you were interested, you can go check that out or those out. Um, or, or better yet, go check out Gregory Sadler's lectures on it. He does, he breaks down every paragraph and it's, it's really phenomenal. In any case, the end result in Hegel, to put it brief, is that we will have a situation in which everyone is different. Everyone is their own individual. But it is through this mutual individuality that we find a commonality. We are common in our being different. We are all connected in our being individuals. And once we've embraced that, we can foster a collective arrangement. And regrettably, he just uh, locates this among a certain Christian tradition which isn't totally apparent if you've only read the first couple of chapters of the phenomenology, but it is very clear, uh, clearly there, that it really just, you have to be Christian for this to really work. But the best, I think, the, <laughs> the way that Fanon looks at it here, you are all individuals, and it is by virtue of all being individuals that we get rid of the differences 
and we embrace that collective individuality. We negate the negation, the negation being the differences, and we all recognize our mutual individuality. Hope that wasn't too complicated. Uh, in any case, self-consciousness emerges in relation to somebody else, so another being, recognizing and cognizing us. So in order for us to be human, it demands there to be an other, another person. So by not recognizing somebody, you keep them in a state of a kind of spiritual bondage. They are not going to be able to realize themselves as a subject, as an individual. So even in, for example, if uh, slavery were abolished, this would not necessarily confer upon people this state of humanity because recognition might still be withheld. So slavery might end. We would see the end of what Hegel describes as the Lord Bondsman dynamic, which is also incorrectly described as the master-slave uh, dialectic. But in any case, that's there. We would see that go away. And what we would be left with instead is a refusal to acknowledge the humanity of black people still. But this is all the more, this is pernicious because while slavery has ended, this is just another way in order to strip people of their humanity. And what's even worse is that the ending of slavery is framed as like a kind of gift to black people. And we, we hear this today and it's very clearly the dog whistle white supremacist stuff on certain news networks where uh, there's this rhetoric that black people should be grateful when, you know, if there's uh, protests going on, they should stop protesting and be grateful as though their existence is a gift that's been given to them by white people. Or to think of it another way, and maybe a little bit more historically empirical way, uh, the abolition of slavery in the United States, one of the driving factors behind it you know, actually, it's a little bit difficult in the history to, to locate benevolence as being the driving factor behind the abolition of slavery. Obviously, it was a good thing. But one of the driving factors behind it was a fear on the part of white people that slavery would come to them. So it wasn't necessarily just born out of a des desire to free black people because of that would be a good thing. There was a fear that that same problem would come to them, that same oppression would come to them. And so in the abolition of slavery, Fanon says that black people were only given white liberty and white justice, which is in itself pretty problematic. Now, it, it, Fanon isn't saying with all this that he's, he's imagining a, a world where there's no conflict, a world where there are no differences or anything like that. In fact, he's welcoming difference. What he's opposing is the, the global imposition of a certain order that comes at the expense of people on the basis of their race and how the social structures that have been put in place through historical racism and racism that very much continues today and at the time that he was writing, how these structures maintain and uphold certain ideas about, in this case, black people. And this puts us here into chapter eight by way of conclusion, which is a if you've made it this far, I think that you're about to get um, some of the more critical insights that Fanon gives. And I think that this is a part of the book that is ignored. And one of the reasons that it's, it is ignored is that Fanon very clearly says he is opposed to reparations. He is opposed to white people feeling guilty for what their ancestors have done. Um, and he, he says it in almost verbatim those terms. 
and I think this is something that I certainly I don't I don't agree with Fanon on. I don't think I have to agree with everything Fanon says, but it's it's interesting, and I think that it's important that we engage with this element of his work as well, especially with the ways that, uh, especially in the United States, conversations about reparations are ongoing, uh, and how they would remedy many issues that have been caused by the systematic. Um, removal of or, or stripping of land from black people of rights from black people of foreclosing opportunities historically for centuries for black people uh how reparations can be really effective there so it's important i think to really engage with this this part um because otherwise we would just be trying to uh realize a narrative or understand a narrative that Fanon is giving us or molding Fanon to fit our narrative i should say so he starts out this chapter by thinking about the difference between himself, a, a black intellectual, and a black laborer, for example, to say that he's alienated, you know, he gets to enjoy many benefits, obviously, because of his position. But he, he knows that he's being uh, oppressed. He knows about the history of oppression, and he's very much aware of how it exerts itself both directly and a little bit more sneakily, more tacitly against him. Now, in the case of like a black laborer who experiences direct oppression and exploitation, it's it's much more clear in that case. And both are or should be driven by a desire to mitigate that oppression, to uh, approach the social factors that continue the oppression of black people in these these two contexts. Now, the impetus behind revolt, behind revolution, is not to reclaim a lost past. It is instead to reshape the future, and to reshape the present, to open up a space for possibility in an otherwise highly limited racist world. One that says, oh, black people or other people of color exist like this, and that is the only way they can exist. Now, he doesn't want to repeat a hierarchy or a hierarchical configuration by simply positioning himself above white people he doesn't want to do that nor does he want to sit and wait for white people to feel guilt for what they've done historically uh, and to undo what they've done because um, he doesn't think that th that's going to be helpful at all he, he sees it and this is might be the existential element in his work um, he sees it as being entirely almost entirely upon black people to say no to that system while saying yes to themselves so the only course of action then he feels he has the right to demand of white people because he feels he doesn't have the right to say uh, to demand reparations. He doesn't have the right to say that white people should feel guilty for what their ancestors have done or what they are, I guess, only for what they are doing now. He only can demand uh, human behavior from the other, from white people. He only says, and he's very much like Aimé Césaire in this way, uh, even though he does differ from Césaire in some ways, he suggests that Europeans embrace the humanity they claim to have, which means respecting the other, means respecting black people or other people of color. So he doesn't want to be only defined on the basis of his black skin. He instead wants to oppose those constricting tendencies of racism and to open up the possibility of, of invention, of newness. And he doesn't feel he has the right um, that you know that white people should like as i've already said feel guilty for all of this but he just wants to open up this newness 
The real fundamental goal for Fanon is to make sure that enslavement does not happen again and that humanity be embraced in all, uh, all people be embraced as human and recognized as being able to bring different things to the table, different knowledges to the table so that as a, as a, as a human species, we can all grow. Uh, and that's, that's essentially where it ends. Um, I'd like to hear if anyone has any differing thoughts about it or if there's anything I excluded or got wrong. I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. They probably like it, maybe. I don't know. Um, leave five stars if you're on a podcast platform that allows you to do that. Like, share, subscribe, as I've already said. And yeah, on that note, take care.